Section 14 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. Book 2 chapter four and now the rosy blush of morn began to mantle in the east and soon the rising sun emerging from amidst golden and purple clouds shed his blithesome rays on the tin weathercocks of communipaw it was that delicious season of the year when nature breaking from the chilling thraldom of old winter like a blooming damsel from the tyranny of a sordid old father threw herself blushing with ten thousand charms into the arms of youthful spring every tufted copse and blooming grove resounded with the notes of hymeneal love the very insects as they sipped the dew that gemmed the tender grass of the meadows joined in the joyous epithalamium the virgin bud timidly put forth its blushes the voice of the turtle was heard in the land and the heart of man dissolved away in tenderness o oh, sweet theocritus had i thine oaten reed wherewith thou erst did charm the gay sicilian plains or o oh, gentle bion thy pastoral pipe wherein the happy swains of the lesbian isle so much delighted then might i attempt to sing in soft bucolic or negligent idyllium the rural beauties of the scene but having nothing save this jaded goose-quill wherewith to wing my flight i must fain resign all poetic disportings of the fancy and pursue my narrative in humble prose comforting myself with the hope that though it may not steal so sweetly upon the imagination of my reader yet it may commend itself with virgin modesty to his better judgment clothed in the chaste and simple garb of truth no sooner did the first rays of cheerful phoebus dart into the windows of communipaw than the little settlement was all in motion forth issued from his castle the sage van cortlandt and seizing a conch shell blew a far resounding blast that soon summoned all his lusty followers then did they trudge resolutely down to the waterside escorted by a multitude of relatives and friends who all went down as the common phrase expresses it to see them off and this shows the antiquity of those long family processions often seen in our city composed of all ages sizes and sexes laden with bundles and bandboxes escorting some bevy of country cousins about to depart for home in a market boat the good olaf bestowed his forces in a squadron of three canoes and hoisted his flag on board a little round dutch boat shaped not unlike a tub which had formerly been the jolly boat of the good vrouw and now being all embarked they bade farewell to the gazing throng upon the beach who continued shouting after them even when out of hearing wishing them a happy voyage advising them to take good care of themselves not to get drowned with an abundance of other of those sage and invaluable cautions generally given by landsmen to such as go down to the sea in ships and adventure upon the deep waters 
in the meanwhile the voyagers cheerily urged their course across the crystal bosom of the bay and soon left behind them the green shores of ancient pavonia and first they touched at two small islands which lie nearly opposite communipaw and which are said to have been brought into existence about the time of the great eruption of the hudson when it broke through the highlands and made its way to the ocean footnote it is a matter long since established by certain of our philosophers that is to say having been often advanced and never contradicted it has grown to be pretty nigh equal to a settled fact that the hudson was originally a lake dammed up by the mountains of the highlands in process of time however becoming very mighty and obstreperous and the mountains waxing percy dropsical and weak in the back by reason of their extreme old age it suddenly rose upon them and after a violent struggle effected its escape this is said to have come to pass in very remote time probably before that rivers had lost the art of running uphill the foregoing is a theory in which i do not pretend to be skilled notwithstanding that i do fully give it my belief End footnote. for in this tremendous uproar of the waters we are told that many huge fragments of rock and land were rent from the mountains and swept down by this runaway river for sixty or seventy miles where some of them ran aground on the shoals just opposite communipaw and formed the identical islands in question while others drifted out to sea and were never heard of more a sufficient proof of the fact is that the rock which forms the bases of these islands is exactly similar to that of the highlands and moreover one of our philosophers who has diligently compared the agreement of their respective surfaces has even gone so far as to assure me in confidence that gibbet island was originally nothing more nor less than a wart on anthony's nose footnote a promontory in the highlands End footnote. leaving these wonderful little isles they next coasted by governor's island since terrible from its frowning fortress and grinning batteries they would by no means however land upon this island since they doubted much it might be the abode of demons and spirits which in those days did greatly abound throughout this savage and pagan country just at this time a shoal of jolly porpoises came rolling and tumbling by turning up their sleek sides to the sun and spouting up the briny element in sparkling showers no sooner did the sage olaf mark this than he was greatly rejoiced this exclaimed he if i mistake not augurs well the porpoise is a fat well-conditioned fish a burgomaster among fishes his looks betoken ease plenty and prosperity i greatly admire this round fat fish and doubt not but this is a happy omen of the success of our undertaking so saying he directed his squadron to steer in the track of these alderman fishes turning therefore directly to the left they swept up the strait vulgarly called the east river and here the rapid tide which courses through this strait seizing on the gallant tub in which commodore van cortland had embarked hurried it forward with a velocity unparalleled in a dutch boat navigated by dutchmen insomuch that the good commodore 
who had all his life long been accustomed only to the drowsy navigation of canals, was more than ever convinced that they were in the hands of some supernatural power, and that the jolly porpoises were towing them to some fair haven that was to fulfill all their wishes and expectations. Thus borne away by the resistless current, they doubled that boisterous point of land, since called Corlear's Hook, and leaving to the right the rich winding cove of the wallabout, they drifted into a magnificent expanse of water, surrounded by pleasant shores, whose verdure was exceedingly refreshing to the eye. While the voyagers were looking around them, on what they conceived to be a serene and sunny lake, they beheld at a distance a crew of painted savages, busily employed in fishing, who seemed more like the genie of this romantic region, their slender canoe lightly balanced like a feather on the undulating surface of the bay. At sight of these the hearts of the heroes of Communipaw were not a little troubled, but as good fortune would have it, at the bow of the Commodore's boat was stationed a valiant man named Hendrick Kipp, which being interpreted means chicken, a name given him in token of his courage. No sooner did he behold these varlet heathens than he trembled with excessive valor, and although a good half-mile distant, he seized a musketoon that lay at hand, and turning away his head, fired it most intrepidly in the face of the blessed sun. The blundering weapon recoiled, and gave the valiant Kip an ignominious kick, which laid him prostrate with uplifted heels in the bottom of the boat. But such was the effect of this tremendous fire, that the wild men of the woods, struck with consternation, seized hastily upon their paddles, and shot away into one of the deep inlets of the Long Island shore. This signal victory gave new spirits to the voyagers, and in honor of the achievement they gave the name of the valiant Kip to the surrounding bay, and it has continued to be called Kip's Bay from that time to the present. The heart of the good Van Cortland, who, having no land of his own, was a great admirer of other people's, expanded to the full size of a peppercorn at the sumptuous prospect of rich, unsettled country around him. And falling into a delicious reverie, he straightway began to riot in the possession of vast meadows of salt marsh and interminable patches of cabbages. From this delectable vision he was all at once awakened by the sudden turning of the tide, which would soon have hurried him from this land of promise, had not the discreet navigator given signal to steer for shore. Where they accordingly landed, hard by the rocky heights of Bellevue, that happy retreat where our jolly aldermen eat for the good of the city, and fatten the turtle that are sacrificed on civic solemnities. Here, seated on the greensward, by the side of a small stream that ran sparkling among the grass, they refreshed themselves after the toils of the seas by feasting lustily on the ample stores which they had provided for this perilous voyage thus having well fortified their deliberate powers they fell into an earnest consultation what was further to be done this was the first council dinner ever eaten at bellevue by christian burghers and here as tradition relates did originate the great family feud between the Hardenbrooks and the Tenbrooks, which afterwards had a singular influence on the building of the city. The sturdy Hardenbrook, 
whose eyes had been wondrously delighted with the salt marshes which spread their reeking bosoms along the coast at the bottom of kipps bay counselled by all means to return thither and found the intended city this was strenuously opposed by the unbending tenbrook and many testy arguments passed between them the particulars of this controversy have not reached us which is ever to be lamented this much is certain that the sage olaf put an end to the dispute by determining to explore still further in the route which the mysterious porpoises had so clearly pointed out whereupon the sturdy tough breeches abandoned the expedition took possession of a neighbouring hill and in a fit of great wrath peopled all that tract of country which has continued to be inhabited by the harden brooks unto this very day by this time the jolly phoebus like some wanton urchin sporting on the side of a green hill began to roll down the declivity of the heavens and now the tide having once more turned in their favour the pavonians again committed themselves to its discretion and coasting along the western shores were borne towards the straits of blackwell's island and here the capricious wanderings of the current occasioned not a little marvel and perplexity to these illustrious mariners now would they be caught by the wanton eddies and sweeping round a jutting point would wind deep into some romantic little cove that indented the fair island of manahatta now they were hurried narrowly by the very bases of impending rocks mantled with the flaunting grapevine and crowned with groves which threw a broad shade on the waves beneath and anon they were borne away into the mid-channel and wafted along with a rapidity that very much discomposed the sage van cortland who as he saw the land swiftly receding on either side began exceedingly to doubt that terra firma was giving them the slip wherever the voyagers turned their eyes a new creation seemed to bloom around no signs of human thrift appeared to check the delicious wildness of nature who here revelled in all her luxuriant variety those hills now bristled like the fretful porcupine with rows of poplars vain upstart plants minions of wealth and fashion were then adorned with the vigorous natives of the soil the lordly oak the generous chestnut the graceful elm while here and there the tulip-tree reared its majestic head the giant of the forest where now are seen the gay retreats of luxury villas half buried in twilight bowers whence the amorous flute oft breathes the sighings of some city swain there the fish-hawk built his solitary nest on some dry tree that overlooked his watery domain the timid deer fed undisturbed along those shores now hallowed by the lover's moonlight walk and printed by the slender foot of beauty and a savage solitude extended over those happy regions where now are reared the stately towers of the joneses the Shermerhorns, and the rhinelanders thus gliding in silent wonder through these new and unknown scenes the gallant squadron of pavonia swept by the foot of a promontory which strutted forth boldly into the waves and seemed to frown upon them as they brawled against its base this is the bluff well known to modern mariners by the name of gracie's point from the fair castle which like an elephant it carries upon its back and here broke upon their view a wild and varied prospect 
where land and water were beauteously intermingled, as though they had combined to heighten and set off each other's charms. To their right lay the sedgy point of Blackwell's Island, dressed in the fresh garniture of living green. Beyond it stretched the pleasant coast of Sunswick, and the small harbour well known by the name of Hallett's Cove, a place infamous in latter days by reason of its being the haunt of pirates who infest these seas, robbing orchards and watermelon patches, and insulting gentlemen navigators when voyaging in their pleasure-boats. To the left a deep bay, or rather creek, gracefully receded between shores fringed with forests, and forming a kind of vista through which were beheld the sylvan regions of Harlem, Morrisania, and Eastchester. Here the eye reposed with delight on a richly weeded country, diversified by tufted knolls, shadowy intervals, and waving lines of upland, swelling above each other, while over the whole the purple mists of spring diffused a hue of soft voluptuousness. Just before them the grand course of the stream, making a sudden bend, wound among embowered promontories and shores of emerald verdure that seemed to melt into the wave. A character of gentleness and mild fertility prevailed around. The sun had just descended, and the thin haze of twilight, like a transparent veil drawn over the bosom of virgin beauty, heightened the charms which it half concealed. Ah, witching scenes of foul delusion! Ah, hapless voyagers, gazing with simple wonder on these Circean shores! Such, alas, are they, poor easy souls, who listen to the seductions of a wicked world. Treacherous are its smiles, fatal its caresses. He who yields to its enticements launches upon a whelming tide, and trusts his feeble bark among the dimpling eddies of a whirlpool. And thus it fared with the worthies of Pavonia, who, little mistrusting the guileful sense before them, drifted quietly on, until they were aroused by an uncommon tossing and agitation of their vessels. For now the late dimpling current began to brawl around them, and the waves to boil and foam with horrible fury. Awakened as if from a dream, the astonished Olaf bawled aloud to put about, but his words were lost amid the roaring of the waters. And now ensued a scene of direful consternation. At one time they were borne with dreadful velocity among tumultuous breakers, at another hurried down boisterous rapids. Now they were nearly dashed upon the hen and chickens, infamous rocks, more voracious than Scylla and her whelps, and anon they seemed sinking into yawning gulfs that threatened to entomb them beneath the waves. All the elements combined to produce a hideous confusion. The waters raged, the winds howled, and as they were hurried along several of the astonished mariners beheld the rocks and trees of the neighboring shores driving through the air. At length the mighty tub of Commodore Van Cortland was drawn into the vortex of that tremendous whirlpool called the Pot, where it was whirled about in giddy mazes, until the senses of the good commander and his crew were overpowered by the horror of the scene and the strangeness of the revolution. How the gallant squadron of Pavonia was snatched from the jaws of this modern Charybdis has never been truly made known, for so many survived to tell the tale 
and what is still more wonderful told it in so many different ways that there has ever prevailed a great variety of opinions on the subject as to the commodore and his crew when they came to their senses they found themselves stranded on the long island shore the worthy commodore indeed used to relate many and wonderful stories of his adventures in this time of peril how that he saw spectres flying in the air and heard the yelling of hobgoblins and put his hand into the pot when they were whirled round and found the water scalding hot and beheld several uncouth-looking beings seated on rocks and skimming it with huge ladles but particularly he declared with great exultation that he saw the losel porpoises which had betrayed them into this peril some broiling on the gridiron and others hissing on the frying-pan these however were considered by many as mere fantasies of the commodore while he lay in a trance especially as he was known to be given to dreaming and the truth of them has never been clearly ascertained it is certain however that to the accounts of olaf and his followers may be traced the various traditions handed down of this marvellous strait as how the devil has been seen there sitting astride of the hog's back and playing on the fiddle how he broils fish there before a storm, and many other stories, in which we must be cautious of putting too much faith. In consequence of all these terrific circumstances, the Pavonian commander gave this pass the name of Helegat, or, as it has been interpreted, Hellgate, which it continues to bear at the present day. Footnote this is a narrow strait in the sound at the distance of six miles above new york it is dangerous to shipping unless under the care of skilful pilots by reason of numerous rocks shelves and whirlpools these have received sundry appellations such as the gridiron frying pan hog's back pot etc and are very violent and turbulent at certain times of tide certain mealy-mouthed men of squeamish consciences who are loath to give the devil his due have softened the above characteristic name into hell-gate forsooth let those take care how they venture into the gate or they may be hurled into the pot before they are aware of it the name of this strait as given by our author is supported by the map of vanderdonk's history published in sixteen fifty six by Ogilvy's History of America, 1671, as also by a journal still extant, written in the 16th century, and to be found in Hazard State Papers, an old manuscript written in French, speaking of various alterations in names about this city, observes, De Helegat, True d'Enfer, Ils ont fait Hellgate, Port d'Enfer. End footnote. End of section 14.